with reporting from around the world. It's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Hello, everybody. Peter Greenberg here with another edition of Eye on Travel for this last weekend of January 2024. I hope you're having a great time where you happen to be. We're having a stupendous time where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 45 degrees, 30 minutes north, 73 degrees, 34 minutes west. Where are we? We're at the legendary Ritz-Carlton in Montreal, in Quebec, in Canada. And a little bit colder than normal, but you know what? I spent five years in Madison, Wisconsin. This is nothing, and we're having a great time. Of course, you can always reach out to me. You know the drill. Email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. Uh, the Ritz-Carlton Hotel here is legendary. It's over 100 years old. It's, it's one of the, the older buildings here in downtown. Uh, it's it's on, a, on a great street, right down the street from the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts, which I love. Uh, so much tradition here, so much history, and the food is so much better than it used to be. Of course, there's even a Daniel Balud restaurant in this hotel, so you can't go wrong there. We'll talk about the hotel a little, a little bit later, but let's get to the news, and there's a lot of it. And of course, once again, it's surrounding the Boeing 737 MAX 9 and the continuing investigation by the NTSB, by the FAA, now Congress, individual airlines themselves, and it's going to get worse before it gets better. Let me give you a little timeline here that sort of sets the scene of what we're talking about. Today is only the last weekend of January, but let's go back to January 5th. Uh, The Boeing jet, operated by Alaska Airlines, loses a door plug in midair. The, door pl- the whole door assembly sort of flo- flies out, forces an emergency landing. The plane was going between Portland and Ontario. Of course, it never made it, turned right back around, made an emergency landing back in Portland. Then on January 10th, um, you know, a United Airlines flight makes an emergency landing in Tampa after a door indicator light turns on. Everybody's now laser-focused on missing bolts because they're starting to find them in other planes. Uh, On January 15th, a New York-bound Virgin Atlantic flight was canceled just moments before takeoff. Why? An alarmed passenger looked out the window and said he spotted several screws missing from the plane's wing. Oops. Uh, January 18th, no no relationship to what's going on here, but it was in the news. An American Airlines plane slipped off a snowy Rochester runway. January 20th, that was my birthday, a Delta Airlines Boeing jet, the nose wheel falls off. Just before takeoff, January 21st, an oven fire causes an American Airlines flight to divert to Houston. And then just a few days ago, Alaska Airlines basically said that their company had found loose bolts in many of its Boeing 737 MAX 9s. And then last but not least, the CEO of United Airlines now making a statement that they're now considering buying Airbus planes instead. Not a good time for Boeing, but... Maybe a great time for us because finally people are realizing the safety culture that's so flawed that has to be fixed. Now, the FAA has already announced they want increased inspections of these planes. The airlines themselves are now saying we're going to do it ourselves. But that's not the issue. The point is, who's doing the work? Who's doing the inspection on the assembly line? Who's certifying the planes as safe to begin with? And therein lies the problem. For more than four decades... Boeing and other manufacturers like McDonnell Douglas in those days, Lockheed, were allowed to self-certify that their planes were airworthy to begin with. Think about that, right? How do you self-certify? 
with somebody called an FAA designated inspector who's pay, who's who's on the payroll of guess who the manufacturer that's that's really the, the the issue that we're talking about and if that doesn't scream conflict of interest I don't know what does but we're just getting started because not only did they certify the planes as safe and they work for Boeing but then in the manufacturing process the assembly line guess what they were inspecting the work and they're paid by Boeing or McDonnell Douglas or Lockheed for that matter therein lies the big problem so now it's one thing for the FAA to say we want more inspections we're gonna do a big safety audit it's another for Boeing to say we're gonna stand down for a day and just have an internal meeting and, and, and figure out what's wrong with our company but guess what who's gonna do the inspections the FAA doesn't have the staff doesn't have the resources, and doesn't have the budget to do it. So who's showing up? What independent agency is there out there to do the work? So we have 171 planes that are now grounded, that are operated by Alaska Airlines and United. And we may see more because once you realize that it's a safety culture question, then it's no longer particular to one particular aircraft. So guess what? Mark my words, they're not going to be increasing the inspections on Boeing 777s. They're going to be increasing the inspections on the 787s, the Dreamliners. Not to mention the planes that are already flying that are not the MAX 9s, but are other incarnations of the 737 model, which is still the most widely used plane in the world. So that's where we stand right now. Uh, a, a company like Boeing almost at a standstill. The FAA paralyzed because they don't have the budget to fix it. But we all know what the problem is. So as we continue to move on, as we continue to move on, we've got to learn uh, how, how to fix a problem that's been with us for five decades, for half a century. Let's remember this. When the FAA was established by an act of Congress back in 1935, it was given a dual mandate that it could never, ever handle. Mandate number one, which we all support, is to enact and enforce safety aviation safety. Mandate number two, and here comes your problem, and they were given this one as well, to promote the business of aviation. Anybody got a problem with that? I got a problem with that, and the FAA internally has had a problem with that from day one, because we can categorically document and prove that in over 90% of the cases where there's been an accident, there's been an investigation, they determine the probable cause, and they also figured out the solution, when the FAA was confronted with those urgent safety recommendations by the NTSB as to how to fix the problem so it didn't happen again, which would require spending money, the FAA sided on the side of either the manufacturer or the operator. It was more important to them about economic impact than fixing the problem. Anybody remember the Ford Pinto gas tank? Ford knew they had a problem. They knew they had a solution, too. It was a 25-cent part to, to basically prevent that gas tank from exploding. And they didn't want to spend the money. And we all know what happened then. So let's go back and look at that behavior and how do we fix that, right? Look, if you know you have a problem, you investigate it. And then when you investigate it, hopefully you find out what caused the problem. And then the trifecta, you not only find out what caused the problem, you discover the solution. And once you discover the solution, and that solution can be implemented, if you then make the conscious choice not to do it, I'm not a lawyer. Any lawyers listening on the show, 
Do the words criminal negligence ring a bell? And that's what we're dealing with. That's the potential every time you hire somebody on your payroll to inspect your work. So there's some problems happening now. Congress is now involved. The airlines are now involved. And now you're involved because you heard it from me. So obviously it's a story we're going to continue working on in the days, weeks, and months ahead. And stick around because coming up after the break, we're talking to Patrick Smith. AskThePilot.com. He's got a few things to say as well. Stick around, everybody, as Ion Travel returns from the famous, legendary, beautiful Ritz-Carlton in Montreal right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you on this last weekend of January 2024 from the Ritz-Carlton Hotel in Montreal in Quebec. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website, petergreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all those great organizations doing all that hard work all around the world and an opportunity for you every time and just about everywhere you travel to help out and give back to the people who need it the most. And of course, we always like to localize those opportunities. There's one right here in Montreal. It's Moisson Montreal. They've been around since 1984, 40 years. Great nonprofit that gathers food and distributes them to charitable organizations free of charge. And you get to volunteer in so many different ways in terms of gathering food, organizing food drives, delivering food, and of course, meeting with the very people who need the most help. If you want more information on how you can volunteer when you're here, that's easy. It's Moisson, M-O-I-S-S-O-N, Montreal. That's one word, moissonmontreal.org. Or go right to our website, petergreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global scale. Uh, If you hadn't noticed lately, aviation safety has been in the news. And uh, I've certainly been talking about it. And I'm pleased to welcome back on the show one of our regulars, uh, Patrick Smith. He's an airline pilot, the author and founder of AskThePilot.com, also the author of Cockpit Confidential and so many other great books. Patrick, welcome back. Thanks, Peter. Thanks for having me back. So let's do a quick recap of where I think we are right now. You know, in this particular situation, after that door plug blew out of that Alaska Airlines 737 at 16,000 feet, the National Transportation Safety Board quite correctly did not treat it as an incident but as an accident. They did a full-fledged, full-court press on the investigation. And, of course, their, their job, their mandate, is to determine two things, the probable cause and then, of course, a, a workable solution. Now, they're not a regulatory body. That's the FAA. But they can make urgent safety recommendations. And it didn't take the NTSB that long to figure out there wasn't a design problem, per se, with the plane. There is a manufacturing and manufacturing an assembly problem with the plane, which, of course, goes right back to the assembly line, not for this plane, but for other planes. And as you know, Patrick, within 36 hours of the grounding, the initial grounding of this plane with an emergency airworthiness directive from the FAA, other airlines, meaning United and Alaska in particular, reported finding either loose bolts or missing bolts on their planes. Not a good picture. 
Well, Peter, we should preface this by just underscoring that it's pretty nice to be talking about an incident in which nobody was injured or killed versus uh, a crash that killed hundreds of people. Oh, you're absolutely right. Yeah, you're absolutely right. The likes of which we used to see all the time. Um, You know, having said that, and, and the emergency that resulted from the door plug coming off the 737 was fairly routine from a pilot's point of view, but... Uh, you know, with that out of the way, you know, we have to be clear that that's not really what this is about and not what all the follow-up has been about. The real issue is what could have happened uh, had the door plug, say, struck the uh, stabilizers in the back of the airplane, causing a, a catastrophic structural problem of some kind, something like that. Um, and 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 really what, what we're looking at now is is, is what negligence is involved? Um, what does this incident say about Boeing and their their manufacturing processes? And, and what does it say about the Max, uh, the 737 Max? As we all know, um, the Max suffered two uh, tragic crashes uh, some years ago: the, the Ethiopian Airlines incident and the with Lion Air, the Indonesian one. Um, and, and, and the plane was grounded for a considerable amount of time, and, and the reputation of, of the MAX has always been tainted, and the reputation of Boeing has become tainted of late. Um, really, this goes back to the McDonnell Douglas acquisition by Boeing some years ago, and ever since then, there's, from all accounts, been kind of a cultural uh, shift within the company, uh, a philosophical shift even, where they've become so numbers focused that their main mission really is no longer to build beautiful airplanes. It's, it's just to make a profit. And, and the, the company's become, some will say, uh, short-sighted and uh, just not having its priorities in the right place. And it's, it's kind of a shame to see this happen to the country's you know preeminent plane maker. But here we are. And here we are. <clears throat> Let's talk about, though, the, the culture of safety, or the safety culture, and not just as it affects Boeing, but the other airline manufacturers as well. It goes back maybe 30, 40, 50 years. We're talking Douglas, then McDonnell Douglas, Lockheed, uh, and of course Boeing. And that is, for that many years, uh, how were planes initially certified to be safe? And then, who was inspecting the assembly line to make sure that everything was done properly, and, and in proper order, and signing off on that. And what we find, and I've known about it for years, I used to scream about it, but nobody paid any attention, that the FAA allowed the manufacturers, not just Boeing, but the other ones as well, to use what they call FAA-designated inspectors. These are people who were the ones who were supposed to certify the plane as airworthy to begin with, and then whatever the model was, to supervise the construction of those planes on the assembly line to certify that the construction work, the assembly work, the manufacturing work was done properly. The problem is, and you know, there are three words that get screamed out, conflict of interest, is that these FAA-designated inspectors were on the payroll of the manufacturer. And in this case, with the Boeing 737 MAX, it would be Boeing. And I have a problem with that. Yeah, and I think a lot of people would, um, without knowing more about it, I agree. It, it, it smells bad. It looks bad. Um, it, it's fair to bring up here too, though, Peter. I think that uh, you know, new airplanes coming on the market. Um, you know, you go back to the days of the DC-10, 
um, and the the horrendous accident that occurred uh, due to what basically was uh, a faulty design and how the company tried to cover it up and and it was it was just a horrible saga. I mean, what we're dealing with now is just you know pales in comparison to that as as corrupt and and yeah scary as it might sound well you know what through this before and we've been through worst variations of it so uh, you know that that's something for thought absolutely let's let's talk about the dc-10 for example because there are two issues with that plane one happened in 1972 and then one happened in 1974 same issue and one happened in 1979 in 1972 a subcontractor here again general dynamics which built the rear aft cargo door did not build a proper door latching mechanism that could sustain uh, pressurized flight. And there was an American Airlines plane, a DC-10, flying over Detroit, where the door literally blew out. And it collapsed. The depressurization collapsed the floorboards, cut a lot of the control cables. All the pilot had left really was throttle and maybe rudder. And he was able to make a miraculous emergency landing with very little to go with, uh, back on the ground. And when they inspected it, they realized they had a problem. And here's where the FAA comes in. The FAA, instead of saying, okay, we're issuing an emergency airworthiness directive that none of these planes can fly until this door is fixed, they issued something called a service bulletin, which is the weakest form of an airworthiness directive, which basically says, hey, when the plane comes in for routine service, you might want to check the door. Well, to their credit, U.S. airlines took that seriously and checked their doors immediately. But they weren't the only people operating the DC-10. And in 1974, a Turkish Airlines DC-10, where they never got around to inspecting the door, that door blew out at a much higher altitude and cut every control cable and everybody died. That was the first issue with the DC-10 and a subcontractor. But the second issue with the DC-10 were the wing pylon mounts uh, on, a, on the left engine of an American Airlines DC-10 that did not hold uh, and that the engine literally flew off the plane on takeoff in Chicago, American Airlines Flight 191. I remember it well, May 25th, 1979. The plane quickly became inverted and everybody died, and that still ranks, uh, Patrick, as the worst aviation disaster in terms of loss of life in U.S. history. And interestingly enough on that, when they did the investigation, what they found was that there was something specifically in the airline's manual that was issued by McDonnell Douglas that said to the operators, which would be American, United, uh, Western Airlines, Continental Airlines, that when you're doing an engine change, don't use a forklift truck. It can't maintain the proper pressure and support. And if it loses pressure, it will weaken the pylons and weaken the support. And American felt they could do the, the engine change with a forklift and save four hours per engine change. And guess what? Take this hold for a break, and I'll answer that when we come back. How about that for a cliffhanger? Back with more right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com, and we'll solve it on the air. more information on what you've heard? Have a travel question or comment? Just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, 
Here's Peter. Peter Greenberg back with you from Montreal, talking to Patrick Smith, author of AskThePilot.com, telling the story of the DC-10 and the FAA. Because what happened was when American Airlines felt they could violate the, the service manual and save four hours per engine change by using a forklift truck, on this particular plane, which was in the service area at the maintenance base in Tulsa, they had two of the bolts fastened using a forklift truck when the lunch whistle blew and everybody went to lunch. And during lunch, the forklift truck lost hydraulic pressure and the weight of the engine on those two bolts was so great that it broke one bolt, bent the other. They didn't inspect it when they came back from lunch, installed the other two bolts. The plane flew as a ferry flight to Chicago, loaded up on Memorial Day weekend with a full load of passengers. And we all know what happened when it took off from Chicago. The question is, where's the FAA's responsibility since American Airlines told the FAA they were going to violate the manual and the FAA looked the other way. So we have to go back and realize that if they're not doing proper oversight, it's because, not because I don't think they don't want to, it's because they don't have the budget, they don't have the resources, and they don't have the staff. And I think that this recent issue, as you said quite quite properly, Patrick, where everybody was really lucky that nobody died and we should be satisfied with that, or at least thankful for that, still brings up the question as to who's watching the store. Well, Peter, I think you're, if you haven't written the book on the DC-10 saga, you really should because your your knowledge is above and beyond anybody else's I've ever spoken to on that uh, particular uh, piece of history. Um, I believe, though, in the uh, case of the American disaster in Chicago in 79, that NTSB did uh, eventually come around to putting part of the blame on the pylon design itself, not simply the airline's uh, maintenance practices. Well, um, yes, but what they found out, though, that the bolts that were broken were not the cause, they were the victim. So, look, there's enough blame to go around, but at the end of the day, you got to look back at the FAA because they knew that they were not following procedures and they didn't do anything about it. Sure. So now let's, let's, let's jump back. ahead. Let, yeah, let's jump ahead to what we're dealing with now with the 737 because the FAA has issued an emergency air within its directive that effectively still grounds these planes until everyone can be properly inspected. And, of course, the FAA has now announced that they're going to do a special audit of the Boeing assembly line, and and Boeing has announced they're going to increase the frequency of inspections. But I have to ask the question again, Patrick, who's doing the inspections? Well, I don't know, Peter. Um, You know, you raised some good points. And uh, meanwhile, though, I think think it's important here to circle back to something nobody's talking about uh, with respect to Boeing. And the 737 MAX, I mean, what this all traces back to is Boeing's reluctance and their decision to not build um, the Boeing 797, which was going to be the uh, new generation replacement, uh, clean slate replacement for the 757 and to some degree the 767. Instead of doing that, Boeing took a design from the 1960s, the 737, and basically manipulated it into this kind of monster plane um, and decided they're, they're just going to keep force-feeding 737s in increasingly modern variations uh, onto the industry until the end of time rather than build a, a clean-sheet plane. And I think, I think what we're seeing is um, proof that maybe that wasn't the best idea. I mean, you know, there are architectural parts of the 737 that are almost 70 years old. And, you know, Boeing decided rather than spend the money to, to build a new frame, they would just uh, tweak and twist the old one and just, just 
you know, try to try to I don't want to say fool everybody, but try to you know make people believe that this this was the airplane of the you know that the airplane of the past was really the airplane of the future, and I, I just don't think that's worked out. And one more thing that you said, it's one thing to say it's the airline of the future. But it's also nothing to tell the FAA, oh, it's not a new plane at all. There's no need for a recertification. And that's where they got into trouble with the MAX and those two crashes. So we have a lot to learn. And most importantly, we have a lot to apply going forward just in this one incident with the 737 door plug. And it'll be very interesting to see the, the overall impact. Because if they're going to inspect the assembly line more often on the 737, wouldn't it stand to reason, Patrick, they're going to have to inspect the assembly line of the 787 and the Boeing 777, the new model of that? Well, I, I don't know if I would extrapolate to that point, but it's certainly possible. And and I want people to understand, meanwhile, I mean, the, the 737 MAX and any other version of 737, they're, they're not unsafe by any stretch. I agree. But it just it just seems a shame that, that this, is, this is what Boeing has become and that this is their this is their product now and this you know this is this is what we have to deal with it's just it, it could have been so much better and then the company seems to have really um you know, fallen out of grace and at the same time if you want to outsource manufacture of certain parts and equipment to third parties there's nothing intrinsically wrong with that but it still right. requires additional oversight no, I agree totally, and you and I are talking about different things to some extent here. But I, I, I agree completely. And what what your your issue is is a you know a regulatory slash bureaucratic thing that somehow has to be ironed out uh, between regulators, airlines, airplane makers. You know how all that happens over time. I don't know, but I think to a degree the system has become corrupt. You're correct. Well, Patrick Smith, we're going to continue this conversation. Always a pleasure to have you on the show. I can still say Happy New Year because we're, we're not done in January just yet. But when we come back, we'll be back in Montreal with the general manager of an iconic hotel where we are right now, the Ritz-Carlton. Back with more of Eye on Travel right after this. Thanks again, Patrick. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg back with you as Eye on Travel continues from the Ritz-Carlton Hotel right here in Montreal in Canada. And of course, you can always reach me you know exactly what to do. You just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. This hotel has got such history. And I first came here about 40 years ago. I then get my most recent stay was 10 years ago. But every time I come, I'm reminded that the design of this hotel, the architecture of this hotel is related to the same guy who did Grand Central Station in New York. Yes. It's the same era, and there's such great history here, which is which is not just you know on the walls. It's you feel it. Um, it it's the position of the hotel, where it's located in the city, um, and it's been welcoming guests for for more than a century. When you think about it, joining me now is somebody who's been welcoming guests here not for more than a century, but I've known him for many many years. He's the general manager, Andrew Toriani. How are you, sir? Hey, how are you, Peter? 
What is it about old hotels that if they are well taken care of, if they are well preserved, if they tell their stories, it makes them almost timeless? Absolutely. I think what it is is that people want to feel special when they go somewhere. They want to feel different. And I think that, you know, a, a building like this with all its history, with its ghosts, with the, the many, many things that you find in this hotel, you, you, you come away as though you've been to that little part of the, of the world that you've never been to before. And, and I think that's what keeps people coming back. And is there any one particular thing? I think it's the fact that, uh, you know, when, you, when you've got a building that has uh, over 100 years of time in it, You've had uh, a variety of uh, really, you know, through the generations, you've had so many important people come through that you can relate to when you when you stay here. You think, ah, you know, this person stayed or that person, um, and I and I think it doesn't matter how old you are, you you find a niche that you can. Oh, they stayed here. You know, John Travolta stayed here or whatever. It's I, well, sixty years ago, sixty years ago this month, well, this year. Elizabeth Taylor and Richard Burton got Absolutely. married at this they hotel. They got married here, yeah, exactly. Because yeah. they couldn't get married in Toronto. They were doing a movie. And Quebec didn't give, force them to gazette their wedding. They flew into Montreal, brought their champagne, and basically got married in the Royal Suite here. The Rolling Stones. The Rolling Stones were here. Richard Nixon. Richard Nixon. We forgive him. Uh, Winston Churchill. Yeah. Go, Paul go, Newman. Exactly. I mean, everybody. Uh, yeah, very, very many. You too. Yeah, yeah, well, yeah, well <laughs> check the minibar. Yeah. Uh, but, but the bottom line is, when you think about the history of hospitality, right, it's more than just the building itself. Absolutely. It's, it's how you have to maintain the service standards. It's the, it's the people. At the end of the day, one of the things that I think that Caesar Ritz set up was this idea of treating people very well. Well, let's talk about the name Ritz, because there was the Ritz in Madrid. Yes. There's the Ritz here. Way before it became uh, Ritz Carlton, which is part of now Marriott, but I'm saying this preceded uh, Marriott for 50, absolutely. 60 years. So it was built in 1912. Well, it was started in 1908. They started building it, but 1912 is when it opened, December 31, 1912. It was uh, the first Ritz Carlton, and it uh, basically, you know, had Caesar Ritz design it. The Warren went. Uh, you know, he was he was the one who, de who dealt who put the people side together. And Warren and Wetmore, as you mentioned earlier, who built Central Station, yeah. were the ones that designed the exterior of the building. And that gave it this particular flair. It was the nicest building in the area. We're, this, we're in what's called the Golden Square Mile. It's where 85% of the wealth of Canada was at that time period. Uh, you know, if you look at the mountain behind us, for instance, it's the same guy who built uh, That's Central Park. That's Olmsted. Mount Royal. Actually, Mount Royal. Yeah. So the park was designed by Olmsted as well. And so we had this uncanny... The same guy who did Central Park. Central Park. And so... What's interesting? You know what the other one he did? I I do, yeah, but I guess I, you do. The Vanderbilt Mansion in exactly. Nashville. Exactly. Yeah. yeah, that's right. Yeah. yeah. But what's interesting about it, we had this uncanny uh, connection as well with New York, and so it brought a sophistication to Montreal. We already had the French culture, but we had that sophistication that came from to New York. To, uh, to and of Montreal. course, in those days, they came up by train. They came up by train, exactly. Amazing. So there was a luxury train trip up to Montreal, down to Central Station, just around the corner, and up uh, into this hotel. And of course, when we talk about trains in Canada, I mean, the trains built Canada, right? The, the original Canadian Railroad. Absolutely. That went, the trans, it was Trans-Canada. It went all the way from Ottawa to Vancouver. And if you look at Canada today, when you look how big it is, it's the second largest country in the world, 
And when you look at it, we're, a, we're within 100 miles. 90% of the population is 100 miles from the border because we all follow the rail from the east of Canada right across to Vancouver. And of course, in those days, you had the railroad hotels, Yes. right? And uh, that was the old you know, Canadian Pacific Railroad. Amazing. I, listen, I go back to the days of Canadian Pacific Airlines, but that's another story. We're talking to Andrew Torriotti, the general manager of the Ritz-Carlton here in Montreal. When we come back, an interesting story about a sense of place and my story about what happened the last time I was here. Back right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you from Montreal on this last weekend of January 2024. We're speaking with Andrew Torriani, the general manager of the iconic Ritz-Carlton here, the oldest Ritz-Carlton, I think, in the, in the business, right? Absolutely. It's amazing. I'm going to tell you a story that happened to me here. It wasn't the last time I was here, actually. It was about 25 years ago. I stayed here at the hotel, and walking distance from this hotel was the Montreal Museum of Fine Arts. And I had about two hours before my flight, and everybody said, you really ought to check out the museum. And I had this idea, which, by the way, I still still sort of have today that I can do one museum per city every time I do a trip. Otherwise, my eyes glaze over and I'm never... Well, I walked down the street. It's about a five-minute walk. I walked in not knowing anything that was going on there. There was an exhibit in there, Andrew, that was so amazing that I changed my travel schedule and I stayed for the next three days and went every day for three days to that museum. And here's what it was. They were ahead of everybody. They had found the original drawing books of Leonardo da Vinci. And that in itself was pretty amazing, but they didn't stop there. Whatever they saw that he drew in those, that he drew in those books, they built it. Yeah. And that's what the exhibit was. Absolutely. And when they built it, that's when you realized, wait a minute, Leonardo, let's forget about the Mona Lisa here. This guy designed and invented the helicopter, but didn't know it. He designed and invented building structural supports for domes that are still being used today, but didn't know it. I mean, everybody talks about who you like to have dinner with. Just one person in history. Everybody says, oh, Albert Einstein. No, it's Leonardo da Vinci. I, I agree. <laughs> this I guy agree. was be, uh, so far beyond the, the Mona Lisa. And it happened right here in Montreal. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, you know, that we're, we're extremely blessed with that museum. That museum is actually seven museums now uh, put together. And they somehow they always find something fascinating to go to there. And you know, it, it like I'm not an art person, but I'm not a. But I'm always amazed when I go in there and I look at something and I see it and I. It just really sort of makes me think about art, actually. And I, I, I am the world's worst artist and, and <laughs> could not name any piece, you know. But honestly, I, I go over there and find it as uh, a, as an absolutely fascinating place. Well, I, I think they've had a history, to yeah. tell you the truth, of really good curators. Which, would, which is what makes great museums. And I, and I, and, um, I think that's what makes it uh, become such a special place. Well, it was and it's so about two minutes away listen, from us. Eh? It was so special to me, you got three more nights out of me here at the hotel. <laughs> we'll, we'll get you for another three nights. I know you will. No, it, it's that amazing. But when people come to Montreal for the first time, what's the biggest surprise to them about this city? I think it depends on where you come from. 
I, I, I do think, you know, we, we often, in our sales piece here, we, we use this tag of, it's Europe without the jet lag. And I think that that's what the surprise is. It, you get a really European feel. And I think the great part is our American cousins bring this friendly approach. And I think Montreal's adapted both. And I think that that's what makes the difference here. That, that, you know, when I think about it. You know, somebody said to me, should I go to Paris this summer? I'm going, are you nuts? It's the Olympics. It'll be a madhouse. Do you want to go to Paris? Go to Montreal. I mean, it's got the French flair. It's got the French influence. It's got the French language. It's got the French food. Yes, absolutely. Right? French clothes. Yeah. You know, the whole, the whole thing. Uh, it's, got a, it's a city with a lot of character. And, you know, it's still a very, it, it's one of those cities you can come to, feel safe. You go to the corner. You're lost. You open your map. You, those people that still use maps. Someone will actually ask you, you know, can they help you? And I, and I think that that is, that is something that we're, we're really blessed with still in this city. It's, because there's not a lot left that, that will engage with you on the, on the street. And that's changed because when I was first here, that was not my experience. But it's changed now. Yes. And I th as I say to you, I think that's where the U.S. has brought something and the rest of Canada brought something particular to, Can to Quebec that, that uh, has evolved over time, especially the city of Montreal. And of course, if you look at the map, Montreal becomes a great hub for you to do day trips outside of the city and see so much more. Absolutely. And you know, we started, we set up with, a, with a, an entrepreneur where we're doing, we're doing longer distance day trips for our, for our guests. He's got a seaplane. He, he'll fly you to Niagara. You do a day trip to Niagara and back. Come on. Absolutely. Quebec City, we, 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 we've organized this for, pe for people now. And, and you know, of course the Laurentians. Absolutely, Laurentians anytime. When do they do the mapling off? Uh, well, generally it starts in be beginning, end of February, beginning of March. Coming up. Depends on how the, how the weather turns. You know, when the if you haven't done it, you need to do it. Have patience, get up there. Exactly. It's, it's maple, it's, it's Canada's oil. Exactly. By the way, they used to have maple syrup robberies and maple syrup kidnappings. I mean, it was it was their gold. Absolutely, it still is. It's it's still a huge part of our of our economy. But the Laurentians in February yeah. is when they literally take the sap and Off they start the trees. And, and it comes right to the trees. And they have these great little places there that you can sit down and eat uh, on in the maple. You know where they actually sat, take the sap. They'll make you a traditional French Canadian meal that goes back centuries and. At the same time, you walk away with your maple syrup. Just dress warmly because it's February. Yeah, sometimes. Yeah. <laughs> Come on. Once you become Canadian a little <laughs> bit, you, you tend to be not need the coat quite as much. We're talking with Andrew Torriani, the general manager of the Ritz-Carlton right here in Montreal. And when we come back in the next hour, we're going to visit with an amazing guy. He's from Venezuela, but he's the basically the conductor and the creative director of the, of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. An amazing guy. So stick with us when we come back to Montreal. That music means you're out of time for this hour. We'll be right back right after this. Thank you so much, Andrew. Thank you very much, Peter. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg.
And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues for this last weekend of January 2024. If you're just joining us, and I hope you're having a great weekend wherever you happen to be, let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps, boys and girls. 45 degrees, 30 minutes north, 73 degrees, 34 minutes west. We are in Montreal, in Quebec, in Canada. Of course, you can always reach me, Peter at PeterGreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. If you hear some noise behind me, I'll explain it later in the show, but you know, we don't just travel on our feet, we travel on our stomachs, and of course, part of a Montreal tradition is to come over to uh, the legendary Schwartz's Deli. It's been here since 1928, so they're nearing their 100th anniversary, and of course, where do I find my next guest? Sitting right across to me, waiting for his smoked meat sandwich, Raphael Payar, the music director for the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. How are you, sir? Very good. Thank you for the invitation. So, you have to tell me the story. You're from Venezuela. Correct, yeah. How did you get to Montreal? Oh, my God. You want the long story, the short story? Let's I'll take any story. Something in you. Right, that's right. Well, I, I come from Venezuela. I've been forming this special program that was founded by Dr. Jose Antonio Abreu. It's called El Sistema. That is pretty much the basis of this is that music should be a right. There, it should not be just a privilege so for everybody. So this is the, the main thing. So you get uh, uh, free music lessons. And the thing that is, let's say, a little bit unorthodox with this program is that you start playing the instrument, but you start playing an orchestra at the same time so I started my my studies there a little bit on the late side I was almost 14 I started playing the French horn let's fast forward a little bit I was part of the National Youth Orchestra of Venezuela we started touring we did a bunch of things and then I decided to start into conducting I won the Malco competition in 2012 in Copenhagen and a few years later well now I am the music director of Orchestra Sinfonia de Montreal are you still playing the horn I would like to say yes <laughs> and in my head I would say yes but sometimes I play for my daughter because they love to hear Prokofiev, Peter and the Wolf and the horn is the wolf um, but uh, in my head I'm absolutely sure that I can do it I don't know if that would be well, true well for me Prokofiev and Debussy fantastic right? yeah. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah 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 it's, it's phenomenal phenomenal music yeah. what's different about the orchestra here well this orchestra has that amazing ability of being of course, the, the level of the, the playing of the orchestra is very, very high, but they have this amazing finesse beside the virtuosic part that is really, really fantastic, and at the same time, they could go with a very round and profound sound, but and then all of a sudden, you're just changing one second to the most sublime, kind of softest dynamic and very, very transparent, which is very unique. You know, we t when we think of traditional symphonies, mm -hmm. right, there are very few and far between these days because yeah. everybody's experimenting. Right, everybody's that's for sure. new new composers, uh, new new new. In fact, new use of instruments sometimes. Yeah, that's so correct. So, what are you yeah. doing differently here in Montreal? Well, I think um, in here. It's funny to talk about what the traditions are because even though there's something new, for instance, we are going through now a cycle of Mahler, which is not it is nothing new, but the orchestra has been well known with the amount of recording that you know, they when did. somebody says to me they're going through a cycle of Mahler yeah. I think I'm getting depressed <laughs> oh no not at all it's fantastic it's the most amazing music Mahler used to say that in every symphony there should be a whole world in it so it is just wonderful to see how everything goes from being completely full of life of like it happened just a couple of weeks ago we played the seventh that is already the turning point when everything starts to go a little bit into the darker side and a little bit more 
philosophical. See, I, I know yeah. about the darker side with yeah, Mahler, yeah. yeah. And it, it is funny, it would sound slightly masochistic to say, but it's wonderful to actually go through that darker side of it because it takes you to places that maybe you don't want to face, but it's just phenomenal to experience. Now, of course, we're in Montreal in Quebec. You're Venezuelan. Yeah. Are you speaking French? Absolutely. <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. That was one of the things I, I learned French to come here. Sí, por supuesto, exacto. Yeah. But let's say that I have a little advantage because with uh, Spanish, there are a bunch of things that happen as well. The of French, course. the structure is there, but I, I learned French to actually be able to be here and understand the people, understand the rhythm, how everything goes. I still make a lot of mistakes, which I apologize. The orchestra could vouch for me on that, but, <laughs> but it's just wonderful to be able to understand and speak the language in here at the city. So your approach to the music and the choices and the repertoire is different. Yeah, yeah, well, one can say that, yeah, absolutely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. In what way? Yeah. Um, I like to have the different, let's say, that I'm not afraid to do things that they are not printed in the score, but the, some tradition, they just do it because of the sake of tradition. So it doesn't, doesn't make any sense. If we're going to do something, it needs to, there has to be a reason. I mean, there's just straight out reading music. And then there's interpreting music. Absolutely, absolutely. And sometimes you have, of course, we have the wonderful old master recordings and things. And then you see, of course, they are human. They have their way of seeing something. But then when you see in the score, that has nothing to do with what they say. And some people might think that that is the truth when the truth has nothing to do with that. It's the truth for that person, you know? Well, I think one of the coolest things about your orchestra <clears throat> is you're doing about 100 concerts a year. Yeah, yeah, yes, that's correct, that's correct. And we do it, I mean, we have an absolute jewel in here in Montreal that is La Maison Symphonique, our hall. It's just fantastic. There's, uh, it's quite unique. When I, the first, I remember the first time I came here, it's like, whoa, this is completely different. This is an amazing hall. And with the orchestra, we do over a hundred concerts a year, but not only at the La Maison Symphonique, we also go and make a concert at the Olympic Stadium, so for 30,000 people during the summer, because of course in the winter we cannot do that for sure, and we go also for, um, to different places, we use a different configuration of the orchestra to be around, because um, being part of the community is very, very important for the orchestra. For someone coming to Montreal for the first time and attending one of your concerts, what would be the biggest surprise for them? Um, probably, especially if you come during the winter, that you will go into the Place des Arts. There are many, many different things happening at the same time. And when you enter into the hall, you will get this kind of light that the winter light is completely different. Well, you know, we can see it now that even though it's bright, it has some kind of bluishness on it. And then you get into the hall and the hall, there is no artificial light and it's so full of life and then you get this amazing orchestra that it will take you to a completely different world so it is a wide opening experience I have to say what would be one of the most interesting and surprising pieces you play ooh do you have time go ahead <laughs> I have a, a particular um, uh, let's say it touched my heart music from Bruckner Mahler Debussy Prokofiev Chostakovich absolutely Beethoven Brahms um, Ravel as well, but also many composers that are, we are also bringing from the Americas, trying to bring a little bit of also the South American part, like Carreño or Castellanos, or even composers from the United States, like Adams or Bernstein, or everything. So, yeah, I cannot really pick one. 
So the bottom line is, it may be a French city in Canada, but it's an international repertoire of the symphony. Oh, absolutely. It's very cosmopolitan. What we do here, it is a very top-tier, high-level thing. It, it is like a, like a capital of the world would be. Yeah. Raphael Payar, the director of the Montreal Symphony Orchestra. A pleasure to see you, sir. And pleasure of course, since we're at Schwartz's mine. Deli, now you got to go eat. Absolutely. I'm, I'm getting hungry now. Yeah. <laughs> All right, well, get ready for this, because when we come back a little bit later in the show, we're going to talk about smoked meats here in, in Montreal, which is a whole different way to go. We'll be back with more of Ion Travel from Montreal right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. And welcome back to Ion Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you as we continue on the last weekend of January 2024. You know the drill. If you want to get in touch with me, just email me. Peter at PeterGreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. And as I do every week at this time, I encourage you to go to our website with the imaginative name, PeterGreenberg.com, for our comprehensive list of all the aid and relief organizations doing all that hard and essential work all around the world, but opportunities for you to get up close and personal and give back to the people who need it the most every time and just about everywhere you travel. We always like to localize those opportunities whenever we travel. And of course, Montreal is no exception. Check out Moisson Montreal. It was founded back in 1984, so that's basically 40 years ago. They're a great nonprofit that gathers food and distributes it to charitable organizations free of charge. And you can volunteer in so many different ways, gathering food, organizing food drives, and of course, distribution. And a great way to spend some of your time when you're in Montreal. Because as I say every week when we talk about these things, you're meeting the very people who live here. Who better to give you the all-time best tour of Montreal than the locals that you just helped? If you want more information, it's easy. It's Moisson Montreal. That's M-O-I-S-S-O-N Montreal.org. And of course, our website, PeterGreenberg.com, for the comprehensive list on a global scale. One of the great discoveries I got a chance to make many years ago, and I, I have to say, before I made it, I was one of the ignorant masses. I also made another similar discovery in the United States, and in particular in one state, Wisconsin. I've since expanded to others, where I didn't really understand the widespread influence, the history, the culture of the indigenous people. You know, I'd watch too many Westerns. I, I, it was all cowboys and Indians. People forget how much of the Indian influence there is in New York, how much the Indian influence is in California, and in Wisconsin, where there are 11 tribal Indian nations. Well, guess what? It's even bigger in Canada. And joining me now is Nina Sigalowitz, who has an incredible story to tell about that culture because she's a, she's a product of it and, and still practices. But she's a throat singer, which she's going to explain, and works the open mic for the Indigenous Open Mic Series here in Montreal. Nina, welcome. Thank you so much, Peter. I mean, let's give people a sense of history and a sense of place. Right before we went on the air, you told me that being at this hotel at the Ritz-Carlton, it was the first time you've been back here in how many years? 50 years. Now tell everybody what brought you here 50 years ago. Well, um, back back in the 40s till 96, um, the Canadian government had uh, the decision that they wanted to assimilate Indigenous people. So they opened residential schools where they forced Indigenous children to be um, 
they had to go to these schools and strip them of their cultural identity. Following that, they didn't, Ottawa and the government decided that they had not succeeded. And so what followed is um, something, a period called the 60s scoop. And during this time, what they did was the RCMP, social workers and doctors. That's and Royal Canadian Mounted Police. Yes, sorry. Um, Dudley do right for <laughs> those of you who may not remember that. Um, they went into our homes um, and our hospitals, and they stole our babies, our indigenous babies. To and the single um, goal was to assimilate us into non and get us adopted into non-indigenous homes. So, in my and that case, happened to you too. yes. So I have six brothers and sisters. We were all um, adopted and scooped up. Um, and I was born in Fort Smith, Northwest Territories, which is north of Alberta. And I was flown here to um, Ritz, here to the Hotel Ritz. At the time, it was called the Ritz. Before it became the Ritz Girl? Yes. yes. And so I arrived here with my uh, nurse and social worker where my adoptive parents came and adopted me and received me, unknowing, not knowing that there were my biological parents back home looking for me because they had not been told where I was. I was, they told me... They kept that a secret. Yes. So my parents... Um, until I met my biological family, they didn't know that I had been adopted. So you did finally meet? I did. I met my biological father, uh, unfortunately, George Vermillion, and unfortunately my mother, Margaret Thrasher. Um, I never met. She passed away. But I did get reunited with my brothers and sisters. But in terms of your background, your mm -hmm. heritage, your mm -hmm. culture, you're, per you're perpetuating that now. You're yes. carrying it forward. Yes. My mother um, was Inuvialuit um, from Inuvik. And uh, for those who don't know where Inuvik is, um, we're just east of Alaska. So it's Alaska, Yukon, and then Northwest Territories. And so uh, the Alaskan Inupiat and Yukon and the Inuit are all very much related. So that's where my mother is from. And my father is Dene um, from Alberta, which is very close to the Navajos. For those who know the Navajo Nation, we're related. And here you are in Montreal, not by choice. No. But here you are living happily ever after. Yes, sir. Yes. So tell me about throat singing. So Inuit throat singing, it's called Gatazjak, which is um, a game that Inuit women have been doing for thousands of years. And the sounds and the songs, that there's a repertoire, and it's a competition. And back in the day, I always joked that we didn't have Spotify, we didn't have YouTube, we didn't have... So we had to make up games, you know? So you hear around the world that, you know, for like the um, dice or cards or different... Uh, games with stones were, were made. In the Inuit, uh, for those who don't know, um, Inuit is the word in Canada that we use for Eskimo. So for Inuit, uh, the women, we would sing and compete. So it's kind of a call back, like a back and forth. And the songs that we sing are imitations of nature. And the first woman who laughs is the loser. So sometimes we would bet. So if I saw another woman with um, a traditional parka, like an amautic, um wearing, and I thought, oh, that's beautiful, I, I want that. So I would say, I'm going to challenge you to sing some songs, and if I win, then I get your, your parka. All right, so I'm not giving up my, my jacket today, but, <laughs> but can you sing a song for me? Yeah, so I'm going to, um, I can do a few songs. Usually this is song at two, and if you, um, you Google my name um, on YouTube, um, you'll see what actually it sounds like with two women. But these are um, some songs. So this is The Goose. So that is inspired by the... 
which is the sound of the goose makes as it flies over. And as two women sing, it's like, <laughs> and that's one of the songs. And then you compete. Yes. So um, usually this tradition is uh, handed down from mother to daughter or grandmother to granddaughter. This is hundreds of years. Thousands of years. Really? Thousands of years. And they haven't, it hasn't changed. So the songs are part of a repertoire. The same thing that like Bach or Vivaldi have their repertoire. And there are versions of people singing a different style. Um, the same with Inuit throat singing in the sense that there is a repertoire. We don't invent songs. They are just simply passed down. And um, But it was interesting because in the 1950s, along with the 60s scoop in residential school, it was outlawed. Right. Who was, who was going to pass it down to you when Ex you were adopted out? Yeah. So I had to go looking for it. And back in the 50s and 60s, Inuit women were jailed for doing this because the, the missionaries who went up north told us it was part of the double. And so we had to go underground, you know, a lot of um, cultures, for example, like I was raised in the Jewish and Filipino community, and I understood through the Holocaust, you know, that the mothers would sew pieces of the Torah into the coats of the children to keep our, their faith strong. Yeah. And so the same thing with Inuit, you know, our resilience is as strong in the sense that the women would sing in secret to keep that tradition alive. So for someone coming to visit Montreal, yes. can they go to Open Mic Night? Um, actually, Open Mic Night was uh, the third um, in year in a row, and it happened in November, and it should be happening every November. But there are events across Montreal um, that celebrate, for example, June 21st is National Aboriginal Day. Um, on Turtle Island, there used to be 500 different nations meaning um, in the States and Canada, there was 500 nations. In Canada, there's only left 52 because of all the assimilation and the genocide. And in Quebec, there are 11 different, 10 nations in the Inuit community. And so if you come to Montreal, there are no numerous amount of Indigenous um, events throughout the summer, throughout the autumn. Is there one particular website where people can get information? Um, if you Google um, Indigenous Montreal Community Events, it will all come it up. It all comes up. Yes. Yeah. And if I come to see you again, will you make me sing Goose? Absolutely. I'll <laughs> challenge you. You, know, you want my jacket, don't you? I do, because I don't have one on right now. <laughs> Nina Sigalowitz, an amazing story, which still continues today. Yeah. And we're a lot of, you know, one of the things that a lot of people have this misconception yes we do have social problems you know stemming from intergenerational trauma from residential school and from 60s group but i think one of the most important things that i try to do when i perform throat singing is to really help people um put down the old images you know you mentioned cowboys and indians people have had this image of indigenous people of first nations that have is dated so when i use throat singing i try to say you know what we're contemporary we went from the igloo to the internet in 60 years that's that's resilience nina sigala it's a pleasure to meet you and to hear that story and welcome back to the ritz under better circumstances thank you and we'll be back with another tradition here in montreal completely different bagels Back with, oh yeah, you're rubbing your hands already. I, I know you I love bagels. Back with more right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
more information on what you've heard, have a travel question or comment, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues on this last weekend of January 2024 from the Ritz-Carlton Hotel here in Montreal. And as anybody knows who knows me, I've, uh, I've, I've part of the, the big battle between New York and, and Montreal on one very important uh, <laughs> battlefront, and that is who's got the best bagels. And uh, I've been coming to Montreal for 40 years. I'm born and raised in New York. And uh, before I give you my vote on this, let me do somebody that uh, knows a little bit about this. He's the co-owner of San Viator Bagels, one of the landmark bagel places here in Montreal. In fact, the last one of the last wood-fired, hand-rolled bagel places you can find anywhere. Robert Morena, how are you, sir? I'm doing very well. So Thank you've me. been around, not you, but the, the bagel place has been around 1957, right? That's it. At the same location. Seven years, same location, same tradition. And what, wood-fired? Absolutely. Everything, is, all the dough is hand-rolled? Hand-rolled, boiled in honey water. Okay, I want to talk about that for yeah, a second. Sure. Before we get to the honey part, talk to me, because uh, everybody's always told me that the real you know, pivotal point of a great bagel is the water. Is that true? It goes without saying at this point. Definitely, the water has something to do with it. And we say it primarily because it's something that New York, New Jersey, Los Angeles, no one can replicate our water. Well, let's stop right now. Los Angeles can't even come in a distant third. <laughs> the water in L.A. is terrible for bagels. Seriously, the worst. But, I mean, you guys are neck and neck with New York, that's for sure. Indeed, we are. So now, how many bagels are you doing in terms of variety? We have about a dozen different varieties at the bagel shop. And they've evolved very slowly. Like every, we've, we used to have about five or six until very recently. And now we put energy and effort into developing newer uh, All right. So you, the number one has got to be what? The sesame seed? Sesame seed is our regular dough, our plain dough. Right. It's, it's, it's the go-to. All right. Now we have the, the bagel called the everything bagel, but you call it what? Fully dressed? All dressed. All dressed. Yeah. Okay, then you've got the, the, the raisin. Cinnamon raisin. Right, you, you have blueberry. Blueberry. Uh, onion. Yes. How am I doing so far? You're doing great okay. so far. You yeah, onion. Uh, <laughs> um, what else do you have? Um, Help you out. The poppy seed, the plain. Poppy seed, plain. Don't forget the caramel. We had this discussion. Oh, the caramel, okay. Maple apple. All right, so now we, okay, we talked and, about- And the whole wheat. And the whole wheat, okay. But we talked about the water. But when you, when you actually make the dough, and then you, you actually roll the dough, right? When you finish rolling the dough and making each bagel by hand, rolling it, right? And I was actually in your place yesterday, and I made some. You actually had me do the dough and roll it and cut it. And the first four or five were pretty pathetic. But yes, right? Listen, I'm going to be honest. You... Considering you only made two dozen bagels yesterday, you, you did pretty well. Uh, well, I've, we ate I've them later. <laughs> yeah, you did pretty well. But when you finish rolling them, then you throw them in the water, the hot boiling water, right? And that water's also got honey in it. Where's the honey from? <laughs> the honey right now is from uh, Florida. <laughs> we we okay. bring it in from Florida. Yeah. Okay, well. In massive totes of about a ton 
each shipment. Really? Yes. And we don't use a lot in a, in a day, but in a year, it, it adds up. All right. So the Florida comes from honey. The honey, or the honey comes, comes from Florida. Florida yeah. Then it's boiled and then it kind of rises to the surface. And then you got wood fire going on there and you stick them in the oven. Indeed. How long? It takes about 20 minutes to cook a bagel proper. All right. Now your store, for the sake of people who don't know it, is not a big location. It's tiny. Yeah, yeah. It's not a big place. And how many bagels are you doing a day? In around a thousand dozen. So 12,000 bagels a day, more or less. And they get consumed. Every last one. Wow. Every last one. We are always at full production, full manufacturing capacity since the 70s. Is there a bagel you no longer make? Um, yes. Then, you know what? That's a great question. The flaxseed bagel. Ugh. Yeah, it well, was. Whose idea was that? I'm, my brother Vince's, but he, he loved it and still loves it, but it, it got cut from the roster. <laughs> it is no longer. We, it got 86. Okay. Yeah, it's gone. But, you know, if you take a look at Montreal, you got a lot of big bakeries right here. They're still around like Fairmount and, right? And everybody comes up. I cannot leave Montreal. I'll be honest. I can't leave Montreal without a bagel. I'm I mean, glad to, I'm glad to hear that. I can't. Actually, to tell you the truth, I can't leave Montreal without bagels. We're talking to Robert Moreno, the co-owner of San Vietro Bagels. Uh, and now I have to tell you, and it's not just because you're sitting here, I'm born and raised in New York. I grew up on bagels, right? I, I moved to the West Coast at one point. I tolerated the bagels. But I have to tell you, you guys win. You guys absolutely have, not just you, Montreal has the best bagels. That's very kind of you to say. Thank you. But I'm not doing it to be kind. I will. I'm will. doing it as a bagel connoisseur. We have an ongoing debate. It's an ongoing debate with New York. It's a different product, but I'm glad you like ours more. I do. Thank and you. And it works. We, it work, works. we work very hard at making the best bagel and representing Montreal in this area. <laughs> Robert Marina, I'll be back to see you with a bigger bag. Co-owner of St. Beatrice Bagels, thank you so much, sir. Thank you for having me. And we'll be back with more of Ion Travel from Montreal. And we're just getting started with the food here. You'll see why right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Ion Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg back with you as Eye on Travel continues for this last weekend in January 2024 from the Ritz-Carlton here in Montreal. Of course, you know the drill. You can always reach out to me. Just email me your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. When I was growing up, I remember watching this on my parents' black and white television. I was fascinated by it. Had no idea what it meant. Had no idea how to play it. I just saw people out there with these big discs and brooms and I knew nothing about it. But then it became an Olympic sport. And the next thing you know, the U.S. won the gold medal. And now we're here in Montreal and I'm joined by Claude Pru, who, who, by the way, was a lawyer for 20 years and then decided to change midstream because right now he is the head of coaching for the Royal Montreal Curling Club. Claude, welcome. Thank you very much. Happy to be here. So how did you make that change? Well, uh, I was, uh, first of all, I'm retired now, so 
I've got more time <laughs> on my hands. And I happened to be uh, walk my dog with a, a woman that was a member at the club. And my dog died suddenly. And she wanted to change my uh, my mindset and my ideas, get my mind off uh, the dog. And so it was just a couple of weeks before uh, there was a open house at the club. She said, come to the open house and, you know, throw a few rocks. And uh, Have you ever seen uh, that? Had you ever seen it? No. Brand that, new. That was brand new, yeah. And uh, so then once at the club, threw a few rocks. She said, why don't you sign up for the... A learn to curl program. Now, when you say throw a few rocks, what does that mean? Well, basically, you're just sliding the rocks from one end of the ice but sheet to but the other. But they're round. Yeah, they're round. They weigh about 42 pounds, made out of granite. Yeah, they are not light. No, not at all. Not at all. So uh, they're going to stick to this, you know, they just slide down the ice, and the ice has a certain, uh, it's a pebbled ice, so it, it, it makes it easier for the rocks to slide down, and uh, they go right down to the other end. And you But hope it takes to, some strength to push them, right? Uh, not that much. Really? No. Because they build up momentum. Well, and the, the the ice is set up so that they do slide easily, you know. How long did it take you to learn? Well, I caught the bug during that six-week uh, Learn to Curl program, and uh, I've been, uh, I've curled for three years now. But the trick was, the first year, is I took a private course every week. <laughs> so my <laughs> skill set went right up during, during that first year. And how many people yeah. in the club? Uh, only about uh, 150 in terms of members. Yeah. So everybody knows everybody just about. Yeah, it's a you know, strong social aspect to the club as well. You know, many dinners or eating. So basically, what you're saying is, you push the rock down the ice and then you drink. Well, basically, <laughs> <laughs> you can have a drink before, you can have a drink after, but not during. <laughs> and, I mean, it's a game of inches, isn't it? It's a game of precision for sure, because the the uh, the objective is to get as close as possible to the center of what is the equivalent of a bullseye at the other end of the sheet. And so that's a bit, you know, like shuffleboard or lawn bowling. It's, it's like or, because yeah. you can be knocked out too. Yeah, exactly. So, you know, that's everybody's got uh, eight rocks to throw each team. Teams are four players each. And everybody sh uh, throws two rocks down. And, uh, and you're allowed to try to slow the rock with, with a broom. Well, you can't slow it down with a broom, but you can. Uh, some people try swipe, uh, sweeping behind it, but it doesn't work. So, you, but you can accelerate. You can give and uh, go get an extra ten feet or more of distance with the broom by sweeping it in front. Oh, really? Yeah. So, sweeping is a crucial part of the game. Wow. Now, I would think. Now, I'm not a curling strategist, but I would think that the key to winning is if you go last. It helps to have the last shot, but uh, it's more than that. Because each team has a skip, so somebody in charge, of it, and they're at the other end, at the bullseye, and they're calling the shots, so they're responsible for the strategy. So strategy is a big part of it. It's like a chess game on ice, if you want. And then if you know, your teammates are making your shots and the other teams are not, then uh, you know, you're going to end up in a better position, obviously. You know. But of course, it really is skill because you have to figure out, it's like three-dimensional chess, actually. Yeah, because exactly. You you have to you just can't shoot it. Chess in movement, if you want. Yeah, because <laughs> yeah. you can't just push it down. You got to realize that if you hit one or you bounce off somebody else, it changes the entire exactly. direction. Exactly. You know, and uh, just in a, as an example, I was playing this morning and I had uh, I was sitting four in the house. Which means? Which means so there's a uh, four. You know, there's two colors. Okay, so four stones in my team are closer to the center. And there's no stones from the other team. So you're doing, you're doing pretty good. Yeah. So if you get four points, that's a lot in one end. And then two shots later, 
the other team had three in and four were out. They'd push back. <laughs> so, Story of my life. Yeah. <laughs> well, I'm looking forward to going playing with you guys. Well, it's going to be fun, I'll tell you that. It's going to be fun. And uh, has anybody ever been injured curling? Very, very rarely. It happens exceptionally. <laughs> you know, no, because we take, a, we take a lot of measures to prevent that. Good. You, know, you put on grippers so you have a good uh, grip on the ice. Good grip on the ice. And we wear headbands or, or helmets, whatever, uh, but something to protect in case of I'll remember falls. you said that. Okay. <laughs> Claude Prue, the head of coaching for the Royal Montreal Curling Club, something people have to come see every time they come to Montreal. It's all year round. Back with more from Peter Greenberg and Ion Travel in Montreal. Thank you, Claude, right after this. And please don't hurt me. Okay. <laughs> Thank you. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from the Ritz-Carlton Hotel right here in Montreal. Taking your emails and your calls is easy. All you have to do is email me first, peter at petergreenberg.com, with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. Let's go right to the phones out there in Austin, Texas. I've got Fran on the phone. Hey, Fran. Hello, Peter. How can I help you? Well, I waited too long to start working on my bucket list of traveling. And at the age of 70, I was wanting to find out how I can pursue traveling now, knowing where to start. The travel agents don't seem to be as available as they were many, many years ago. So I'm a little overwhelmed by the computer-assisted traveling plans and wanting to know what is my best option. Okay. I I think I can help you. Believe it or not, the travel agents are more than they were a couple of years ago. They have resurfaced and rebounded in a very big way. Uh, More important than ever, of course, they proved their value during the pandemic because they were really acting as advocates for so many people who couldn't get their refunds or couldn't get rebooked. And they proved their worth then and they're proving their worth now. As you know, I'm a big fan of always having a conversation. And it's not about being overwhelmed by computers, Fran. It's about not depending on the internet to give you the answers you really need. So... I have a question for you first. Uh, I'm sure you you have a bucket list or at least a little bit of one, right? Yes. Okay. Tell me what's on your bucket list. Um, First of all, uh, cruises, uh, just getting away and relaxing in a calm, peaceful environment. Okay. Seeing some of the sights in Europe. Okay. So here's an answer for you. You said a cruise, but in a calm environment. It's called river cruising. And that's how... You know, commerce started in Europe. It's all along the rivers. And there are a number of great okay. river, river cruise companies, ranging from Viking and Ama Waterways and Uniworld. But first of all, you mentioned travel agents. So my suggestion to yeah. you is there are two travel agency consortia. One is called Vir- right. Virtuoso, and one is called right. Signature. And you can find them easily either at virtuoso.com or signature.com. But let me tell you what these guys do. They're specialists in destinations. They're specialists in experiences. So they're not one-stop shopping travel agents. They they will have specialist agents that knew nothing but river cruises in Europe. 
and they will have the answers for you that you need. Uh, as opposed to Fantastic. just the old days of a travel agent that would send you on a, on, a, on a trip and your son to college and your someone else on a business trip. They have these consortia, every one of their travel advisors is a specialist either in a particular area or a particular type of travel. So that's one place I'd start. Wonderful. See, wasn't that easy? That was, and it really gives me a place to start. And I like the human contact. I want to talk to somebody. Absolutely. And if you have any trouble at all, you just email me right back, peter at petergreenberg.com, and we'll help you out. I'm a huge fan of the conversation. And remember, when you talk to somebody, if it, for whatever reason, not every call is going to be a perfect call. But if you talk to somebody and they're not giving you the information you want or they're not giving you the information you need, then you know what? You can always call somebody else. The bottom line is, though, That's right. go with one, go with an agent or an advisor that specializes in the area of travel you want to go or the type of travel you want to do, right? Uh, and then, yeah. and next thing you know, your bucket list just got expanded. Okay, Fran? Oh, wonderful. This gives me hope for this year. Okay. I appreciate your time. And let, me, and let me know what happens, okay? I will. Thanks, Fran. We really appreciate it. Thank you. you Bye-bye. And let's go to the mail. Here's one from Daisy who says, I heard you on your radio show, and, and I'm not sure if I heard the whole thing, something about having a connecting flight with a 33-minute window to get to the next flight. And then Daisy writes, if anyone books a connecting of less than 30, an hour is an idiot. <laughs> well, then you didn't hear everything I said. I said anybody who books a connecting flight of less than two and a half hours is an idiot. So Daisy had the right idea. Uh, she says, even if no delays on, an, on, on either and getting them one gate to another can take more time than half an hour. I agree. That's my whole point. Daisy, listen carefully. Any airline that publishes a connecting flight of less than two and a half hours is not doing you any favors at all. And when people go online, and, and I have no idea how these flights could even be considered legal with a 33-minute connect time, uh, it's, it's suicidal. Don't do it, Right. So when you go online, go online to research. Don't necessarily go online to buy your flight. Find out exactly what the deal is. What's the minimum connecting flight? And what's the next flight after that at your connecting point in case you missed the first one? That's how you figure it out. Otherwise, you are literally, if not figuratively, flying blind, right? Now, another thing that people don't tell you about, if you're going to Europe, you know what the connect time legally is? For passengers at London's Heathrow, it's three hours. Here's what they don't tell you. You know what the connect time legally is, minimum connect time for your bags? Four hours. So why wouldn't you pick a flight with a four-hour connect time or your bags may not catch up with you? That's the kind of stuff you're not going to see online. But no matter whether you're online or you're having a conversation, you know the rule. Anything with a connect time of under two and a half hours, you are putting yourself at risk. And make sure you know what the next available flight is in case your first flight gets there so late you can't even meet that or make that second flight. All right? Again, anybody with a question, just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. And we'll be back with more of Ion Travel from Montreal right after this. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.
With reporting from around the world, it's time for Eye on Travel with America's number one frontline travel news journalist, Peter Greenberg. And now, the man who travels over 400,000 miles each year, Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg here, back with you for this last weekend of January 2024. Ion Travel continues. And if you're just joining us, I hope you're having a great weekend wherever you happen to be. Let me tell you where we happen to be. Get out those maps. 45 degrees, 30 minutes north. 73 degrees, 34 minutes west. We are in Montreal, in Quebec, at the historic Ritz-Carlton Hotel here in Montreal. And, of course, you can always reach out to me. You know the drill. You just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, Question or problem, we will solve it right here on the air. Uh, so many things to talk about. And uh, let's start with topic A. And topic A, which, by the way, was topic A four years ago in, in the last weekend of January of 2020. What was topic A then? Over-tourism. What is topic A today? <laughs> over-tourism. And it's just getting worse. Not just overseas, but also in the U.S., Let's do a recap here. In Venice, that's in Italy, officials are about to charge a separate fee for anybody coming into the city who does not have a hotel reservation. They're trying to stop all the day trippers that make the Bridge of Sighs look like the Bridge of Thighs, right? In Athens, these numbers are amazing. Officials are trying to limit the number of daily visitors to the Acropolis. Remember last summer? They were all marching up that hill in 100-degree-plus weather. People were collapsing. Well, they're trying now to limit the number of daily visitors to the Acropolis from an already staggering 30,000 people a day down to 20,000. Like, that's going to make a difference. And now let's get back to the U.S. in Las Vegas, which, as we all know, likes to promote itself by saying what happens in Vegas stays in Vegas. Well, you'd better be careful not to stop in Las Vegas if you want to take that selfie. That's right. There's a new law now. And the, the number of visitors is creating such a human traffic jam that they passed a new law that says you cannot stop or stand on a bridge or overpass above the strip to take a selfie. And if you do, you'll either get a stiff fine, up to $1,000, or even get thrown in prison. Here's the concept. Visitors are now banned from stopping or standing on bridges or, let me quote, doing anything that causes another person to stop. <laughs> So don't tie your shoes on the bridge. Uh, don't bend over. Just stop. Don't, don't stop. Uh, so much for, uh, for the Las Vegas attempt to deal with, uh, with over-tourism. And you know what? They're dealing with it in ports with cruise ship limitations. They're dealing it with locations where the cruise ships can go. Uh, but the bottom line is, let's be smart as travelers. Let's go when everybody else isn't. Let's begin to embrace the off-season, which is the smartest way to do it. Remember, nobody goes to Paris in November for a suntan. You don't go to Paris in July for a suntan. And by the way, speaking of over-tourism, you don't go to Paris in July this summer. The Olympics are going to be there. The prices have doubled, in some cases tripled. It's not going to be fun. Uh, but that's another issue, which we'll get to a little bit later in the year as we get closer and closer to the annual Olympic Games, which, of course, will be in Paris. Uh, but anyway, having said all that, get smart, folks. Get out the calendar. Realize why you're going to a place and then figure out when you want to go when you're not going to have to stand in line or <laughs> bend over to tie your shoes in Las Vegas. How about that? All right, let's move on because this is one of the funniest stories I've seen in a long time. And we need a little fun. You know, when I was in junior high school and high school, if uh, I'm going to try to be delicate here, 
if someone passed gas in the classroom, you know what we used to say? He who smelt it, dealt it. <laughs> or as someone else just recently said last week, he who denied, he who denied it, supplied it. Well, you may have heard the story that we talked about a couple of weeks ago about the passenger on another flight that had such a severe case of diarrhea that it just didn't like occupy his seating area. It was all over the plane, and it got so outrageous that they had to do essentially an emergency landing and get everybody off the plane, do three hours of hazmat cleanup, and then fly everybody back out on the same plane. Can we all go, eee? Well, listen to this one. About a week ago, an American Airlines passenger flying from Phoenix to Austin was removed from the aircraft for farting and talking about it with other passengers in the cabin. Obviously, he who smelt it did deal it because he was boasting about it. Uh, here's what happened. Uh, as soon as this passenger sat on the plane, he was grumbling about something. Several minutes passed, and a majority of people are seated. They still hadn't left the gate. And, you, and, and, and all of a sudden, this pastor said, you thought that was rude. Well, how about this? <laughs> and we know what he did next. <laughs> well, needless to say, he kept doing it. And, uh, and, and, and he just kept on doing it and doing it and doing it. And finally, uh, they, uh, they took command and, uh, and off the plane he went. Now, here's a little story that you don't know. Now, the plane was delayed by about 30 minutes, but here's something that people don't realize. It's in the contract of carriage at every airline. What can the airline do within its rights to throw you off a plane, right? Well, obviously, drunk and disorderly would be one. Uh, and disorderly, of course, means punching somebody out or not obeying a, 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 an order of a flight attendant or a member of the flight crew. But the other reason why they can throw you off the plane is if the, the flight crew determines that your dress, what you've chosen to, to wear, is inappropriate. Now, my, you know, it, if there's too much cleavage or there's a butt crack, you may get yourself thrown off the plane or, or told to go to a bathroom and change into something else. It gets crazy because those standards are not uniform and it's up to the individual flight crews to determine what, what is appropriate and what isn't. But there's another issue in the flight contract of carriage that nobody knows. But the airlines know they can throw you off the plane for offensive bodily odor. It's in the contract. So the good news for those passengers on board that, uh, about that American Airlines plane is they smelt it and they dealt with it while the plane was still on the ground and that guy was thrown off. Uh, interesting story, right? But it happens more than you know. So if you're sitting on a plane and the person next to you decides to clip their toenails, uh, you know what? That could be disorderly conduct. Get that person off the plane, especially if you're on the ground. Uh, if somebody's drunk, report it before the plane pushes back. And the same thing applies, of course, with offensive bodily odor. And with every plane being full these days, is it any surprise that this doesn't happen more often? This guy, of course, consciously decided to pass gas and then boast about it. Uh, obviously, he got 86 As I said before, we're coming to you from the Ritz-Carlton here in Montreal, in Quebec, in Canada. And when we come back, a visit to a very special place that I did the other day. And now we're talking to the people who really started it all here.
the folks at Cirque du Soleil. Uh, you know, this is truly a circus town. And uh, the stories that, that start here, the stories that are done here, the people who are trained here are truly remarkable. And when we come back, we're going to talk about those stories and with the people who actually put it together, not just here in Canada, but the Cirque du Soleil uh, performances all over the world. So stick around. We'll be back from the Ritz-Carlton in Montreal with a little visit to the folks at Cirque du Soleil. Back with more of Eye on Travel, and uh, we promise not to pass gas right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Eye on Travel will be right back. Once again, here's Peter Greenberg. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from Montreal in Canada. Of course, you know the drill. You can always reach me. Just email me to peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We will solve it right here on the air. I'm trying to think about when I saw my very first Cirque du Soleil show. It was not in Montreal, even though it started all here. It must have been in Los Angeles on a tent in Santa Monica. And then I went to Las Vegas and did every one of those shows. I'm still addicted to one in particular that I'll share with my next guest in a second called Ka at the MGM Grand where as opposed to every other Cirque du Soleil show the stage itself is the star but we'll talk about that later but if you're in Montreal this is the circus capital of North America no matter how you slice it and my next guest is basically he runs all the quality performances at Cirque du Soleil Michael Smith welcome Thank you very much Now you just moved here not too long ago from Cirque du Soleil in Tokyo right? Um, well, I was 10 years on the road yeah. uh, as an artistic director working in different shows because I, I love traveling. I think uh, travel opens up our horizons, it opens, you know, our whole cultural experience changes because of travel. Right, but now you're here in Montreal? I am, but still traveling. But you like, but you like Montreal now. I love Montreal. Um, it was what we were talking about earlier. It, it is such a unique place and, you know, Cirque du Soleil could never have come from anywhere else but Montreal. Why? Because it's this unique um, mix of Europe and North America. The fact that, you know, we are a very much Anglo-Saxon organized company. We do business like an Anglo-Saxon company. But the creative part is the Latin part. It's messy. Um, <laughs> you know, everybody has an opinion and everybody should have an opinion. You know, it's this, it's this melting pot of cultures and I think Cirque du Soleil is a representation of that. And, and as you go around the city, it's the same thing. But it all started here. It all started here. Yeah. And it continues here. It does. It, it, the, the, our headquarters is still based in Montreal. At any given time, could you give me any kind of a ballpark figure as to how many Cirque du Soleil, show, Cirque du Soleil shows are being performed right now around the world? Ballpark figure. 49. That wasn't a ballpark figure. That was a specific <laughs> figure. <laughs> I checked my documents. But that's not because we, we're, we're an umbrella company now. It's not just the shows in the Big Tops and the shows in Vegas. We also have Blue Man Group. We have V-Star. We have uh, 
events and experiences. <laughs> I obviously work in the big top shows. Right. Um, but yeah, it, it, is, it is expanded to include much more than it did when it first started. Wow. And then, of course, you're always reinventing. But this is the pressure that we have. You know, we, we're an in innovative company. So every time we create a new show, we have to look at what has not been done. And how long, on average, does it take you to create just one new show? Oh, it's, it's a couple of years in production. Really? Before it, before it opens, yeah. Before you take it out. Yeah, absolutely. Like a year in pre-production, then when the cast arrive, a good six months of trying things... You know, ideas that you thought were going to be really good on the stage <laughs> don't end up being. And think mistakes that happen create new ideas and new avenues to explore. So, What I always found fascinating about your shows is the sense of humor. Absolutely. But right? like, if we can't laugh at life, um, then we have a problem. And I think, you know, it, when people laugh in live entertainment... It creates, whether it's true or not, it creates the feeling they have enjoyed themselves. And laughter is just, it's, it's, it's an inspiration to everything that we do. I mean, for me, Cirque du Soleil is part improv, part ballet, part opera, uh, part acrobatics, of course, mm -hmm. part unbelievable skill, um, and all at the same time. And, and storytelling, of course. But, yeah, it's all those. I, I would say... Uh, Improv is not part of it. But it, it is but, but very it's, rehearsed. But it, we know that, but it comes across that way. Which is uh, absolutely, because yeah. again, it's about being spontaneous. And, and then the feeling of being spontaneous opens up people's souls and their imagination, their emotions to receive. And, you know, we, what, where we're different to musical theatre is that we don't have a story as such. The story evolves and changes depending on the, the players that we've got. What the common denominator is that we create entertainment that allows an audience to explore their own imagination. I like to believe that in 2,000 people who've watched the show, 2,000 people have seen their own show. Whatever is happening in their lives, whatever they're feeling at that time, they will see different things. You can go and see a certain slave show that you've seen before five or six times. You will see new things. Exactly. That's, that's what we do. But this is the hub, Montreal. Yes. And... Yesterday, I went out to the circus school. Oh, okay. <coughs> Excuse my cough. I went out to the circus school, and I just took a look at every one of the students there that were working, trying to, to get to the next level, right? Mm -hmm. So they might be cast in one of your shows. Absolutely. And I took a look at what they were doing and their skill set and realized that had I tried to do that, I would be in orthopedic surgery right now. <laughs> but that gave me a whole newfound respect for the work that goes into any one particular skill set. You know, uh, the end result is, is very glamorous and it's entertaining. The payoff is that what we do, the, the result of our work at the end of the day is, is uh, thousands of people standing up applauding and in being inspired. But to get to that, it's, it's a lot of hard work and discipline. There, there is no... Um, shortcut there is no easy way to do it training is every single day people give up an awful lot of and sacrifice in their lives in order to do what they do but and it's a beautiful thing to do when i went out to that school i said okay how many people apply <laughs> how many people get accepted and then of those who get accepted how many actually make the make the make the make the cut well yeah it's it's a tough industry 
It's a tough industry, and we're at the top end of the industry, so yeah. What's your biggest challenge? Uh, <laughs> good question. Um, I think um, I, it, it is, I, I'm in such a circle of inspiration because I'm in, so inspired by the people I, I have the opportunity to work with, but I also realize that I have to inspire them. So the biggest challenge is making sure that I don't ever forget that and it becomes, uh, there's, there's moments of self-indulgence. It, it shouldn't be. It's, it's everything that I do is for the craft and for the work and for other people and at the end of it, inspiring audiences. So it's just remembering how lucky we are uh, to do what we do. In all of your experience at Cirque du Soleil, was there ever, I'm sure there was, I, I asked this, by the way, of chefs, you know, what was the one thing you put on your menu that you thought was going to be great and nobody ordered it? Or conversely, what was the one thing you figured, do I really have to put this on the, sh on the menu and everybody ordered it? From a show perspective, what's the one performance that you put on that you thought this is going to be the showstopper and you had to get rid of it? Oh my gosh, so many. Uh, so many. I mean, that, that's the role of a director. You have to be brutal with yourself. Um, you can't hold on to something that is not working for an audience. You're subservient to the experience that the, the, the audience has. And sometimes you think, you know, I know this can work. I really believe in it. But you have to go, okay, Michael, it doesn't. You have to walk away and you have to start again. Um, that's, that's, that's the creative process. And sometimes it's really tough. Because you're coming it's up with tough. a combination of acrobatics. Mm-hmm. Excuse the expression, gravity, mm -hmm. right? Storytelling, and the space in which you have to work. Yes. And that really governs what you really can and can't do. It does, and, and acrobatically, every acrobatic image is driven by a character, is driven by a story, is driven by an emotional engagement with the artist to what they want to say at that moment. It's not just the, the triples they do in the air. But getting an acrobat to understand that is also the challenge. We, we have a lot of people... To make them understand that they're also telling a story. Well, yes, because we, we don't recruit... Ten, our recruitment is not in um, circuses. It's, it's from elite sports. So to be in the Olympic Games representing a country at World Championships, you have to have such a sense of self-discipline and control. And everything that you think has to be internalized. So... They come to us with this incredible discipline, incredible technique. We have to turn their emotions inside out to get them to understand, yes, you executed an amazing triple, but it's when you land and you touch the audience, what is that? That's the important what part What are you saying? Audience. Yeah, exactly. And that's a, that is a, a long process, and it's a continual process. Well, I'm happy to be here in the, in the Cirque du Soleil capital mm. of Montreal. Lovely to meet you. And I'm not available for any triples. Well, there's doubles. I'm not available for even singles. <laughs> Michael Smith from Cirque du Soleil right here in Montreal. Thanks so much for joining us and looking forward to all the next shows. Come and see us. And we'll be back with more from Montreal as Ion Travel continues right after this. Have a travel question or problem? Just email Peter at peter at petergreenberg.com and we'll solve it on the air.
more information on what you've heard, have a travel question or comment, just log on to petergreenberg.com. Now, here's Peter. Peter Greenberg back with you as we continue Eye on Travel from the Ritz-Carlton here in Montreal. You know, earlier in the show, we tried to figure out who has the best bagels, whether it's New York or Montreal, and I'm... Uh, I have to, there's, it's not a contest, folks. It's Montreal. And I'm telling you this as a New Yorker. So don't get mad at me. Just come up here and try them. Um, you'll see the water's different. The system is different. The wood-fired grills are different. And uh, that's what makes the bagels the bagels. But there's another food institution here in Montreal that's been around for nearly 100 years. I think it's been around since 1928. And you don't go there for anything other than one thing. I mean, they have other things on the menu. But as my guest will, will tell you in a second... You can ask for them, but you're going to get something else. And what you're going to get is smoked meat. Now, that's what they call it here in Montreal. In New York, we call it pastrami. Uh, and it's brisket. And it's unbelievable. This is an institution uh, co-owned, by the way, uh, silent partner by Celine Dion. Uh, it's been around, as I said, so long. It's very tiny. Only, only nine uh, stools at the bar. And they can sit maybe 60 people if they're very friendly. But you cannot get in this place, uh, except if you come at this time of the year. And you still got to get there right about 10 o'clock in the morning if you want to avoid the line. Uh, Of course, I had to go. I'm a pescatarian. Listen to me. I'm a pescatarian, and I had the brisket. Was that? Will that tell you something? Frank Silva's the general manager. He's been there for, what, 44 years? Exactly, 44 years. Oh, my God. Okay, listen. We talked about the bagels earlier. That's a trademark. You're 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 basically a signature dish of, of Montreal. Yes, we are, and we've been around and prove it year after year. We we're by far the best. Well, okay, enough with the commercials. But <laughs> but for me, it you know once I figured out what you guys were doing and how you smoked everything, you slow cooked it, right? You, you see these huge pieces of beef coming in in the morning. Right, how many are you bringing in? Well, this is a slow period, so we're talking about 2,500 every third day. That's a lot. Yeah, well, no. It's, well, it's a lot for me. Yeah, in the summer, is every day. And then how long do you smoke it? Well, we smoke for approximately 10 to 12 hours. Right, and then you treat it, right? Well, well you cover it with the spices. No, you co- no we, we treat it first, yeah. marinate it for 10 days. Ah, you see, we forgot that part. Yeah, that, well, 10 days. Day, yeah. We marinated for we're dry, dry cured, right? Secret blend of spices. You're starting to sound like the colonel. <laughs> <laughs> yes. For 10 days in the fridge, then we smoke it for 10, 10, 10, 11, 12 hours, depending on the size of the brisket. Then we steam it for around four hours, and then we hand slice it. Wow. And then, of course, to me, you do something with, different with the french fries. Well, we peel the potato. Well, that part I got. Yeah. Then... We, we dice it, we wash it, we blanch it. We cool it in the fridge, then we fry it again, and then a third time. So these are triple fried French fries. Absolutely. Which, by the way, I can tell you, I'm a witness to this, I experienced it. It's crispy on the outside and really smooth on the inside. That's right. Vegetable oil. Really? Yeah. That's it. That's Has it. anything changed in your menu since 1928? Well... We, we had to add the poutine. Everybody Explain, comes... Uh, you can't say that without explaining what it is. Well, poutine is french fries, cheese curds, and a gravy. And then, of course, we put smoked meat on it, too. 
Because <laughs> you have to have smoked meat. Now, when you cut the meat, right? I mean, it can be fatty. Yes. Which, by the way, gives it so much more flavor. Absolutely. Right. So if I were to order, I call it still pastrami, but if I order the smoked meat, yeah. you got to have it on rye. That's There's right. There's no other way to have it, right? No other way. No other way. Can I have it lean? You can ask for it lean, but you're not going to get it lean. <laughs> you just won't give that to me. No, we know better. And of course, in New York, you're going to think I'm blasphemous now, but in New York, for me, it's a hot pastrami and Swiss on rye with Russian dressing. That will not play here. No way. You, we don't want to alter the taste of the meat. So keep it simple. Little deli mustard. That's it. And no cheese. No cheese. No, nothing else. But I saw a guy today open up a sandwich and load it down with deli mustard. Yeah, we don't encourage it. You don't want to coat it too much. No, absolutely not. What makes this so special about Montreal? What, what, what is it about the smoked meat that is so synonymous with, with Montreal? Well, it's been around since 1928, and it hasn't changed much. They say the whole world's changing. Schwartz's hasn't. We don't have microwaves, no espressos, no desserts, no alcohol, nothing. It's exactly the same menu since 1928, basically. Great food. I forgot to add one thing. You know what I drink with that? Black cherry. Black cherry, and, and you can't even get any ice. No, 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 no ice. ice. No ice. <laughs> Nothing's changed. No, and won't. Is there a time of the day you got to go? Because you guys have lines around the block. Yes. You got to go nice and early. We start okay. serving at 10 a.m. So, Okay, if truth be told, I had my smoked meat sandwich at 10.30. <laughs> That's what time I had lunch. Yes. I wanted to avoid the line. And it was great, wasn't it? It was absolutely great. And it wasn't lean. <laughs> but you know what? I'll come back. Excellent. You know what, guys? You, you cannot come to Montreal without the bagels, and you can't come to Montreal without the smoked meat at Schwartz's. You guys are an institution. Thank you. Frank Silva, thanks so much for stopping by. Thanks so much for giving me the not lean meat. <laughs> and we'll be back with more with a very interesting story about a different kind of food here, Syrian food, and why it's being served. Back with more right after this. Please remain seated with your seatbelt fastened. Eye on Travel will be right back. Now, back to Eye on Travel. Peter Greenberg here with you, back with Eye on Travel as we continue from the Ritz-Carlton here in Montreal. Of course, you can always reach me. You know the drill. Email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question, or problem, and we will solve it right here on the air. What many people don't realize about Canada, not just Montreal, is that this country gets major kudos from me uh, about their embrace and acceptance of so many refugees around the world who have now been embracing Canada itself, who are now calling Canada home, but still need a lot of help in terms of, of adjusting, getting an economic base, getting on their feet, basic goods and services, healthcare, food, jobs. And one of the organizations uh, that's been working with them, and in particular, Syrian refugees. You know, most people don't realize this. If you go to Jordan right now, one quarter of the population in Jordan is Syrian refugees. Well, here in Montreal, we have many of them. And joining me now 
is Adele Tarzibashi, who is the co-founder of something called La Fifa Touche. Adele, you're working with how many Syrian refugees now? We are 10 in the kitchen right now, 10 ladies working with us. Right, and, and what you're doing is you're feeding them. Yeah, exactly. We give them the opportunity to integrate in the society. We give them job, and by this job, they feel independent, and they feel related to this new country. Now, you may have 10 people working in the kitchen, but how many refugees are we talking about? Uh, actually, uh, Canada received uh, around 25,000 refugees five years ago, and uh, during this uh, moment, there was a lot of refugees coming and asking to find a job. It, was, it wasn't easier to find a job, so... Uh, by creating our company, Le Fifa Touche, we give them job, we give them hope. And uh, from that time till now, it's around 50 uh, ladies work with us. Some of them left because they have a nice experience so they can find another job in uh, Canada, in Montreal specifically. And some of them, they just continue with us. But you're also basically a way station, if you will, for people until they can find a job. Yes, exactly. It's it's very hard to find the first experience, job experience, uh, when we are moving to Canada. So some of them, they are uh, like teachers. Some of them, they are lawyers. So it was hard to find the job. And our company opened the doors for them to give them the opportunity of uh, first uh, employees. What gave you the idea to found this? What gave you the idea to start this? Uh, actually, the idea came uh, when I uh, uh, when I meet uh, Josette Gauthier. It's uh, it's uh, the founder also uh, for the FIFA Touche. She has been uh, she's documentatrice, so she has been uh, traveling around the world and she saw a lot of refugees opening their restaurant, their food truck, and uh, catering service. And when she came back to Montreal, she had the idea, how can we help here in Canada, the refugees coming to here? And of course, I don't know if this is your idea at the beginning, but it's an interesting byproduct. You've now introduced the people of Montreal to Syrian food. Exactly. We, uh, our identity or our goal is to let Canadians discover what is Syria, what is the food of Syria, and what is the uh, authentic flavor of uh, perfume, of spices, of our souk, our uh, city, Aleppo or Damascus. Of course, you know, we all know, about, well, I won't say we all know, but I certainly know about the Lebanese meza. Yeah. Right? The food in Lebanon is unbelievable. What's the food of Syria? It's There's some similarity between Lebanon and Syria. Uh, we, we use a lot of spices in our kitchen. Uh, we are just like a Lebanese people, so we put all the meze on the middle of the table and we share our plate. And the name, Lefi Fatouche, what yeah. does that mean? Fatouche, it's a very colorful salad. It's like the signature of uh, Syrian Lebanese uh, salad. So it is. You're the salad girls. Yeah, it's a, <laughs> it's a salad girls, exactly. Right? <laughs> yeah. Now, where can you find the food? Uh, if somebody's visiting Montreal, how do they find your food? Because uh, that goes to support what you're doing. Exactly. So uh, they can find uh, our food via Lufa Farms during all uh, the year. In summertime, we open our kiosk in Marché Jean Talon, so they can visit us. They can meet the ladies in our kiosk in Marché Jean Talon from uh, the end uh, the end of April uh, till the end of September. And we sell also our chips via all the IGA. We sell also IGA our spices. IGA being the grocery store yeah. here in Montreal. Yeah, it's a big store. Oh, in I Montreal. know. Yeah. yeah. 
So the bottom line is you've opened the door for them. Yeah, exactly. So everything it's made by these ladies. The food it's prepared from zero with these ladies. And the spices also, we import them from Syria. We mix them here and we pack them with the ladies. What's the website? It's uh, lefifatouche.com. Lefi, L-E-S-F-I-L-L-E-S-F-A-T-T-O-U-S-H.com. Definitely check it out when you're in Montreal. Go to the markets, buy the food, engage in a conversation, and learn about an experience that you otherwise would never, ever have right here in Montreal. Adele Tarzibashi, thank you so much for joining us. Thanks, thanks. So happy to be here. And back with more from the Ritz-Carlton in Montreal right after this. Your flight might be late, but we're on time. Ion Travel will be right back. been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production. Peter Greenberg back with you as Ion Travel continues from Montreal in the Ritz-Carlton Hotel here. Of course, you can always reach me. Just email me, peter at petergreenberg.com with your name, phone number, question or problem. We'll solve it right here on the air. Let's go out to Wall Township in New Jersey. I've got Barbara on the phone. Hey, Barbara. Hi, how are you? I'm good. How can I help you? Well, I have a bit of a predicament. I applied for a visa to enter Australia back in October, and I did it through the app. And um, I don't know what happened, but it was lost. The visa that did not appear on the app. However, I have a hard copy of the confirmation of the visa. So now my question to you is when I check in, this is a Qantas flight that I'm going on. When I check in, can I use the the paper confirmation? I got you. I know know what you have to do. Okay. First of all, how do you know it was lost? Because when I go to the app, there's no record of my um, my visa. But. Where there, it had been. I did this back in October. It, it was there, you know, right after I, I applied for it. Okay. So, And you paid with a credit card, didn't you? Yes, I did. Okay. Here's what I want you to do. When is your flight? Uh, February 6th. Okay. Here's what you're going to do. You're going to apply for another visa. Yes. Get that one solved. Make sure it's yes. confirmed. And then, yes. And then go back to the other one and dispute the charge on your credit card. Oh, okay. Very Easy simple. enough. Easy enough. And then just make sure it's all confirmed and you have hard copies and, and even take a photo of of, uh, of the screen page that says it too, okay? Uh, yes, I'll do that. See, Excellent. See, wasn't that easy? It was, very. And I thank you so much for your uh, attention on this matter. You got it. Let me know what happens, Barbara, and have a great trip to Australia. Thank you so much. Take care. You got it. Thanks. <laughs> and let's go back out of the phones again, this time to Tucson. I've got Peggy on the phone. Hello, Peggy. Hello, Peter. How can I help you? Okay, here's my question or my letter to you. Um, and first of all, I just want to say I appreciate all you do for the travel community. Well, thank you. Um, I, w- I went to book a ticket with American Airlines from Tucson to Heathrow for three weeks at the end of June. Uh, while checking all the one-stop flight options, I found that almost all of them had one of the two segments now operated by British Airways. I've taken these flights in the past, and that wasn't so. Uh, when I went to book the flight, either Main Cabin or Premier Economy, American Airlines website said I needed to contact British Airways for seat 
selection. I decided to call American Airlines before I booked to find out if my current advantage status with American Airlines could be used on these segments with British Airways. The American Airlines customer service rep told me no and also informed me that if I wanted to pick seats for my British Airways segment, that British Airways charges for this service. The only way you you don't get charged is if you pick your seats 24 hours before flight departures. Okay, let me stop you right there for a second. Okay. You you did this online? Uh, yes. Okay. Well, I aren't on well, I went on the website and then I went and called American okay. Airlines. Well, let me ask you a question. Did you book it yet? No. Good. Congratulations. Here's what we're going to do. Have you heard of the words travel agent? Yes. Good. You're going to use one. You're going to, you're going to use one and have a conversation with them. Only use the internet to research. Don't always use the internet to buy because you find yourself in a predicament like you're in right now where nobody's giving you a straight answer and you're welcome to the brave new world of code sharing where one yeah. flight is operated by another airline with different inventory. So yeah. call the travel agent. And by the way, if you, you can use your American Airlines Advantage number on a British Airways flight and vice versa because they're both part of the One World Alliance. However, your status at American should give you the opportunity to book a seat in advance on British Airways without getting charged for it. Remember, there are a lot of seats that are available on the plane that you won't be charged for. What airlines do today, it's all about the upsell. They want to get you, they want to, get you to book a more expensive seat even if it's still in coach. So call a travel agent one who specializes in airlines as opposed to cruise lines. Okay. Let, let them know what you want to do. Tell them the flight numbers you want or the time of day, and they'll figure out whether they should book it through British or book it through American. Because at the end of the day, one leg of that flight is flown by, by American and the other leg is flown by British either way, right? Right. And that's what you're going to do. I mean, look, code sharing can get very dis- discouraging and confusing. Happens to me all the time. And remember, when you have a code share flight, that means British Airways may only control so many seats on the American flight, and American Airlines can only control so many seats on the British Airways flight. And here's the craziest part about it. Sometimes the fare in each airline's inventory for the same seat is different. So you do your homework, go on the British Airways website and see what they're charging for the flight, then go to the American Airlines website and see what they're charging for the flight. You might be surprised. Either way, though, once you do the research, don't get stuck in internet hell. Do yourself a favor, call a travel advisor, have them walk you through it, and pay for it through them with a credit card. Interesting. Wow. Thank you. Okay. All okay. right. Yeah. I used to do a lot of travel for my business. Now I'm retired, and so many things have just changed. I don't have to tell you. So uh, No, um, no and, and, I, and I won't let you tell me because it's too discouraging, right? <laughs> <laughs> but bottom line is, have that conversation. Okay, Peggy? Uh, Thank you, sir. You Appreciate got it. it. You got okay. it. Okay. That music Have means we're out one. of time for this show. A lot of people to thank. Amanda Morris, of course, doing the production. Jeff Ryder doing the boards. Uh, of course, Andrew Toriani and the entire staff of the Ritz-Carlton here in Montreal. And we will see you guys next week from a different remote location somewhere around the world. Bye-bye, everybody. You've been listening to Ion Travel with Peter Greenberg. Visit our website at www.petergreenberg.com for more information and sign up for our newsletter. Ion Travel is a CBS Audio Network production.